The Halftone is brought to you by Haywire Press, presenting signed, deluxe, and limited edition books by Lee Friedlander from the photographer's own private stock. For more than 40 years, Lee Friedlander has been collecting his pictures into books, with trade editions often accompanied by limited and deluxe editions. Haywire Press offers an array of Friedlander titles spanning his entire career. From the limited edition of his landmark first book, Self-Portrait, featuring a tipped-in silver print, to signed copies of his latest book, Western Landscapes, just published by the Yale University Art Gallery. In the Haywire catalog, you'll find special editions like the American Monument, with a beautiful cloth and leather binding of the trade edition paired with a bound portfolio of ten signed and matted gelatin silver prints. There's also the photogravure edition of Cherry Blossom Time in Japan, published by Frankel Gallery in 1986 and printed by halftone guest Thomas Palmer. It features 25 gravure prints signed by Friedlander and printed by Palmer on an etching press in his Rhode Island studio. Also available are signed copies of Friedlander classics including Factory Valleys, Like a One-Eyed Cat, and Stems. And new titles exploring Friedlander's vast archive like Family in the Picture, as well as the books Street, Children, and Portraits from his new series The Human Clay. These and dozens of others are available at haywirepress.com. You can also find them on Instagram at haywirepress. Right now, Haywire is offering a special discount for Halftone listeners. Enter the offer code HALFTONE at checkout to receive 10% off your next order. For signed, deluxe, and limited edition books from Lee Friedlander, visit haywirepress.com and enter the offer code HALFTONE. That's haywirepress.com. Hi everyone, I'm Eric Marth and welcome to The Halftone my podcast and chance to visit with photographers, printers, and curators to talk with them about what they do. Thanks to everyone who's pitched in with donations over the past few weeks. Your contributions help offset gear, travel, and web hosting expenses. If you'd like to help support the show, head to thehalftone.org and click the support button. Thanks a lot. On the show this week is photographer Matt Eich. He told me that he first picked up a camera when he was about 10 years old, and it doesn't seem he's set it down since. Over the course of his career, he shot editorial work for The New Yorker, Time, Wired, National Geographic, and The New York Times, and received an Aaron Siskin Fellowship, as well as grants from National Geographic and Getty Images. For more than a decade, Aisha has been working in the southern United States and Appalachia, making pictures in what he's described as the aftermath of extractive industry. Long before the rise of Trump, Aish was focused on people who felt abandoned, listening to their stories and watching closely. A portion of this work was recently collected in his new book called Carry Me, Ohio, which quickly sold out upon its release. If you'd like to have a look at some of Matt's work, you can follow the links on our website at thehalftone.org. I hope you will. Another quick note before we start. I love hearing from listeners, and if you have something to say, a question, or a guest to suggest, you can reach out. I'm eric at thehalftone.org. All right, now here's my talk with Matt Eich. You're a Virginia native? Mm-hmm. 
born in Richmond and lived there until I was four, I suppose. And then we moved to Suffolk and grew up for a little while in this kind of like suburban feeling neighborhood. And then we moved to this really rural part of Suffolk called Chuckatuck, which is out in the sticks in peanut country. Yeah. Off a of gravel road. Yeah. Can and you get a little closer to the mic? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, and uh, what did your parents do? So my dad is a cardiologist. My mom was a physical therapist, but I'm the oldest of four kids. So we were homeschooled for nine years and my mom didn't work for a while. Um, but we lived out in these pretty rural stretches in Suffolk near Chuckatuck in Smithfield, kind of right on the James River. And um, I guess I was about 10 years old when photography found me or vice versa. Um, my grandmother was dying of Alzheimer's and I went on a road trip with my grandfather. He handed me this little point and shoot camera and I made some pictures kind of, of you know, the landscape around where we were, which was Cades Cove, Tennessee. And I made this one particular image of a kind of rotten fence post in the middle of a field. And the composition wasn't terrible, you know, and the yeah, light was yeah. kind of beautiful or mm -hmm. whatever, and, but it was a snapshot. It wasn't a special sure, picture. Sure. But, but uh, And you said you were 10 years old? Yeah, but and that was something that you recognized in the picture, yeah. That's well, what you. That's the the hook or something. Like when yeah. you have some success, it took me a lot longer than ten years old. But well, <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how successful a picture was. But the thing that kicked in for me was that it unlocked the feeling of being there with my grandfather. Like yeah. When I saw yeah. it after the fact, I was like, it kind of transported me, and so I became really curious about what that meant and what possibilities photography had and so like obviously now as I'm kind of unpacking all of this baggage I was clearly trying to deal with my grandmother's kind of mental unraveling and using photography as a tool to access memory but all of this was subconscious at that point in time so get home see this picture and then I was like oh that's kind of cool and somehow I found my parents Nikon in 2000 stuffed in the closet and this mm -hmm. was a camera that they'd bought to photograph me as a baby yeah, and then yeah. pretty much lay dormant until I was a kid. So 35 millimeter? 35 millimeter pre-autofocus days but it was an auto-wind camera you know so it was like pretty advanced so yeah, for yeah. 1986 when right, right. <laughs> they got it or whatever. Um, so that was just laying around in the closet. I found it, took it out, started making really bad pictures of flowers and you know bike tires and all of that kind of stuff and I was really quickly hooked so I started mowing lawns for neighbors and saved up enough money to when I could go to the Ritz camera store nearby and like dump all of my assorted change on the counter and right, my parents right. had worked out this deal like for your birthday like you pay for half of this thing and then we'll like chip in the rest and so I worked for a long time and went in and I was like I want that one and it was the nicest camera they had at this little Ritz camera store it was a Nikon N70 mm -hmm. had autofocus auto wind all of that stuff and I was shooting slide film primarily mostly that, like Velvia 50. How did you make that choice? Then? I don't know it was just like all over the place then and yeah. I was like reading popular photography and I was really into nature photography stuff mm -hmm. so like these nature dudes were all about, you know, Kodachrome 64, Velvia 50, and, you know, really fine grain, beautiful, poppy color kind of film. So that's what I was interested in at so that point. So what were some of your references aside from, it sounds like almost trade magazines, mm -hmm. to name a few, but were there other photographers or other bits of photography that you were looking at then? 
Yeah, there's. And you're you're how old now? Are we at the at in this the Nikon? 10 to 12 yeah. range. You know? <laughs> um, there was this guy Moose Peterson who did a lot of nature stuff, and this one guy who's named John something, and I can't remember his last name, but I remember like I went to Richmond to hear him speak at a lecture and I was yeah, the youngest yeah. person in the room and he was super sweet. He gave me a bag that was like a brick of Kodachrome 64 film. He was like, wow, you know, like go make pictures and like keep getting better. Yeah. I really wish I could remember that guy's name, but you know, just, I was really fortunate early on that I was exposed to good photography and met really interesting people. So I was also looking at like the national geographic photographers video on VHS. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something you found at the library or something like that? You know, yeah. like got it for Christmas from my parents, yeah, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. So I was enamored with Nick Nichols and the fact that he would like live in a rainforest for seven months and like spend days up in a tree waiting for this rare bird to land in front of, you know, like all of that seemed totally magical to me. And not until years down the road did I realize like I am totally not cut out for that. <laughs> That's a, just a different world from what I want to, to document. But, right, um, right. That was an inspiration point. So, making, well, it's good to see somebody with the commitment. You know, they're going <laughs> to live in a tree, right. To do the thing that they want to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and just the way that they, like the geographic guys in particular, like talked about their work and articulated the purpose of the work, definitely kind of permeated my youthful subconscious. Let's say, you know, so I, I was I would get up super early and put my camera on a tripod and like go walking into the woods and try and make pictures of birds and stuff and. Eventually, I started, you know, like submitting to state fair competitions or whatever at my parents' behest, and yeah. like had some early success. My dad suggested, like, why don't you, you know, like write an article for this magazine that we get, Birds and Blooms or whatever. And so I wrote an article at age thirteen or fourteen, how to photograph your backyard or something like that, and I got paid a couple hundred bucks. And I was like, yeah, hey, this right. is cool. <laughs> like, I, I could, I could mess with this. Um, so that's, yeah, like in the 10 to 12 range, mostly nature, some family pictures. Um, and then I had a pretty bad foot injury when I was like 14, I want to say. Photography related? No, it was on a hayride, you yeah. know, like a youth group get together really? and fell off the hayride. Oh, and shit. Got run over and foot was crushed. And then I was Jeez. kind of like laid up in a chair for a while and pretty immobilized and unable to get out and make pictures or do much. So I, that was when I really picked up the guitar. I'd been dabbling with guitar, but it okay, yeah, was yeah. kind of like my entry into music, which consumed much of my teenage years and then was a pretty good outlet for the angst that I couldn't put into photography sure, or channel sure. through photography. Um, <clears throat> and then towards the end of high school, I'd, at that point I'd been applying to work at this Ritz camera store where I bought my first camera since I was 14. I yeah, like, yeah. got hired when I was 16. And so uh, I would take breaks and go down to the bookstore and flip through the photo magazines. And I saw James Noctoy's work. And I think it was when he was working in Iraq. So he'd been at it for fucking like 20 years at that point or something. And I think it was right around the time that he was in like an incident where a grenade had been tossed in the car and like the writer threw it out the window and it blew off the writer's hand and knocked away was wounded but like kept photographing through the thing and like sure. reading about this as a 16 year old that grew up in like rural Virginia was right, like, right. what is this like this is a whole new world uh, and it's you know I'd been always engaged in following the news through 
the local newspaper, which is the Virginian Pilot. Mm -hmm. So my parents had a newspaper basket by the back door, and I would see this amazing photography rolling through on a regular basis. And I studied that for whatever reason. Like, that really stuck with me and has always been an influence. And then I think when I was around the age of 14, my mom took me to this thing called Truth with a Camera, which was a workshop that had just started. Yeah. And they had some National Geographic people and some, like, Pulitzer Prize winners, like this woman, Marcy Nicewander, and her husband, Larry, who was, like, the DOP at National Geographic for a long time. So, like, I was exposed to these names, and it wasn't until later that I realized, like, they actually ran this great photography program at Ohio University. And so it was, like, after discovering Noctway and some people had said, you know, check out OU. I mm -hmm. wanted to apply to photo programs. I applied to... Western Kentucky and Mizzou and the Corcoran and visited a few different schools, visited yeah, yeah. Micah in Maryland and growing up in a small town when I went to DC and places like that, I was like, I'm, I'm going to die here. <laughs> There's no <laughs> way I'd survive city life. Yeah. Uh, and I visited Athens, Ohio and it felt right. It was just about the right size for me. Fairly rural, felt comfortable there, felt familiar in a lot of ways. And um, people you're interested in, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You know, didn't know what I was interested in at that point. I just knew that I wanted to make pictures and I wanted to do something with my life that had some artistic and social merit. And I felt like I'd have a better shot doing photography than spaz metal, jazz metal, which was like the that was your thing. The thing, yeah. 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 <laughs> I was playing in some some pretty wild bands, um, and they were fun uh, and cathartic, but. Yeah, I, I doubt there would have been much of a future making that kind of music. Right on. So, Athens, Ohio. What what year is that? So you get in, I assume, right? Or, yep. Um, yeah, I interviewed with some of the faculty members, including a a guy who is like a temporary faculty member named Bruce Strong, and Bruce ended up being one of my first mentors at OU. Um, and. So I started there in September of 2004. I'd been in a long-term high school relationship and was like planning on keeping the long-distance thing going, but that yeah. quickly fell apart, as one might imagine. Um, and so I remember like first year there being pretty miserable, especially the winter. I'd never had a winter like that before. I didn't know what to expect in Ohio. Um, so and, and just how bad was it compared to Virginia winter? I mean, at least in the Hampton Roads region where I grew up in yeah. Virginia, we oh, get yeah, like two or three inches of snow. Right. If that, everything would shut down and this was, you know, like a foot, foot and a half of snow yeah. or something. I just didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> um, so the first year was pretty rough at school, but I like got to, I don't know, kind of expand my social circle a little bit and certainly learning a lot, soaking in a lot of photography. Thankfully, I was exposed really on to Eugene Richards and some people like that that are still influencing the way that I work and think. Uh, I had some amazing classmates and some amazing professors, and so I got pushed really far, really fast. And they don't teach you to think about your work there or to disseminate your work, but they teach you how to make it, kind of like a machine. Yeah, yeah. So that was pretty well ingrained after the first year we had I think we started off with slide film, and then we went to darkroom, black and white, and then by the spring we were in digital because we were on the quarter system. Mm -hmm. So we were the first class that switched over to digital uh, in the program. 
and like the last that did film. So they've got a program where you're learning to make work, but do you have the option once you've been through slide film and darkroom photography and digital to continue on in whichever format you want? Not really. They want you to just keep plugging. Because you got deadlines and like the local lab started to, you know, pare down their services and soon they closed down and then people had to drive film all the way up to Columbus to get it processed and just became a thing. So there were grad students still shooting slide film after that, but we were the last undergrad class, I think, to do it. Um, So are you making work primarily for school still at this point? mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so fast forward, let's see, end of 2005, that was like the beginning of my sophomore year met my wife, um, who was a freshman at the time. I was a sophomore. She's an Ohio girl. I'm from Virginia. Um, So we like started falling in love in the fall of 2005. And then in the winter of 2006, right around February, I was in a picture story class. And that's when I really started making the Carry Me Ohio work. I'd made a couple short picture stories before for classes, and I'd done some exploring to kind of figure out where I wanted to go, but I had no idea how to articulate myself, how to mm-hmm. introduce myself to people, how to talk about my work. And so I found that I was being rejected more often than not when I'd go and knock on doors or approach people. Just trying world. to get your foot in and start making work in yeah. places where you're a stranger, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the more comfortable you are, the more comfortable people are about having you around. And yeah, I was yeah, like completely yeah. out of my skin, uncomfortable, yeah. just even approaching people at that point because while I knew that I really was interested in photographs of people and I wanted to do that myself, I was naturally pretty introverted and didn't like pulling myself out of that comfort zone. So that was a process. And uh, I would guess, uh, you know, having seen uh, a lot of your work, that that's something that you've got well under control and figured out now. No, it's still it's a like, struggle. Really? Yeah, it really is. Wow. It's like a well, I guess, day-to-day thing. I guess it's a, is it a struggle, but you can overcome it? Yeah. Because it seems, you know. Like you, I have to. You get yourself into these situations or into these places uh, with what seems to be like just solid regularity. Yeah. I mean, over time, I've certainly learned how to tune my awareness of people and like Mm -hmm. people that are really open people that I'm responding well to or that are responding well to me and when you find an opening just go for it but you know more often than not a lot of these pictures that I make are kind of in passing or maybe somebody that I don't get to have a real genuine connection with but that's what I'm always looking for and that I found is kind of the root of most of these projects is like an individual that I'm drawn to for whatever reason that is open enough to have me in in their life. And then I just kind of let it play out over a really long period. And that person introduces me to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else. And usually there's some project kind of assembling itself before I know that I'm actually making something. Yeah. And before I have any parameters or terms to put on the work. So you mentioned Carry Me Ohio, which is a book that's just out and something that you started way back in, what was it, 2006 we're talking here? Yeah, the work spans from February 2006 to February 2016. And the work came out in October of 2016, a little later than we expected, um, but like three weeks before the presidential election. So what was, can you talk a bit about the sort of 
genesis of that and, and your first interest and uh, sort of formulation of, of those pictures? Sure. So February 2016, I'm 19 years old. I'm a sophomore studying photojournalism. I'm taking sociology classes, in particular sociology of poverty, which was really interesting to me at the time. Um, and in this picture story class, we had, you know, deadlines to meet and things to do. So I went out with this one community in mind called Chansey, Ohio. It's spelled Chauncey, but mm -hmm. if you mispronounce it, then they know that you're an outsider and usually give you the boot. So I figured out, okay, gotta say Chansey. I, there's certain things I can and can't say when I'm introducing myself. Um, but I found that this little village was very close-knit and not super open to outsiders. So I'd wandered around without much luck and was getting a little desperate when I saw this pickup truck pull up at the car wash. Dad got out with like a teenage boy who's actually like a neighborhood friend and then the two young boys, some dirt bikes and a dog. They were washing the dirt bikes. So I walked up and started a conversation with them. And they were like, yeah, cool, man. Just like make your pictures, whatever, doesn't matter. And I wasn't really expecting that. I figured I would get shot down. So made some pictures there. And then the dad was like, why don't you hop in the truck and I'll take you home and introduce you to the family. And being really naive and 19, I had no idea of like the possibilities of what could have gone wrong sure. in that situation. So I was like, sure, man. Yeah, that sounds great. And I like jumped in the back of the truck and we rolled home. Yeah. And he introduced me to his wife, Tracy, and to his identical twin daughters, Casey and Lacey. And he's like, these are my daughters. They were born deaf. <laughs> They're really, you know, fascinating kids. Uh, so they were four at the time, and they'd found out that they were deaf when the kids were about two. So they'd had cochlear implants done since then, but they were basically unable to articulate themselves or express themselves. Like the family still didn't really know no sign language, the kids mm -hmm. didn't really know sign language. And so there was this enormous kind of gap where the girls were completely connected and they like understood one another. They had their own sort of like code or language to communicate, but the family was on the outside. So I was fascinated by that dynamic and, you know, just drawn into the idea of family and a family that felt familiar and that like they're in a rural area and they looked like a lot of people that I grew up with, but they were clearly different than my family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they were amazingly open. So I started coming back and photographing them, getting ready in the morning and putting the kids on the bus or taking them to school and then homework or dinner time or bedtime, like all of these little routine things. And so I just photographed them for a few weeks as often as I could. And sometimes it would be, you know, six or eight hours in a day. And sometimes it would just be like an hour here or an hour there. And I put those pictures together and made it into a photo story, like in a traditional sense with a beginning and a middle and an end, sure, which sure. is what they were trying to push us towards. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is like pre-recession. They were preaching that we were all going to leave and get jobs in newspapers. And then like the really good photographers would move to a better newspaper and then you'd move to a better newspaper. And then maybe someday off in the future, you'd leave and become a freelancer or a magazine photographer or whatever. Right. There was this kind of ladder that you had to climb. Um, and so it started with this one family, the Sellers family. Did a story about them. And, and meanwhile, still going to school, finishing mm -hmm. up school? or Yeah, and like having to turn all of these 
pictures in yeah. on a regular basis right, right. and like write about them and caption them and you know yada yada. And then from there, I did a story about the Goins family that lived like less than a mile down the road from the sellers, but much different family dynamic and a lot more issues even. So it was, um, yeah, different complications to the work. And again, it was a situation where I like, I saw people that interested me and I approached them and I was turned away. And then just by coming back around town later, they found me again and they were like, Hey, I know we rejected you before, but now we want you to come back and hang out with us, which was again, unexpected. Um, so it's kind of just about being open and available and there, at least that's how these early pieces came together. Um, so I photographed them for that class and like, you know, wrapped up those deadlines or whatever. I went off to an internship at the Orange County Register in California. Uh, I was so there. that's, that's as you finish school once no. you're done with school or no, oh. no, this is all like <laughs> sophomore year, you know, 2006 still. So like that was February and March photographing those two families basically. And then by April I was in California. I was there until I was there through the spring. So I took a quarter off of school and then came back. So this is like fall of 2006 and I immediately went back to the Sellers family and kept photographing them because they were the people that I knew and that I felt closest to and most comfortable with and they were always changing and evolving and becoming more interesting. Um, and I had more classes. Uh, yeah, I can't remember what I honestly worked on that fall. I, yeah, I think I had some other little picture story class things, but nothing that was super meaty. But I would try and find areas or people that I was interested in to fulfill these single image or like little story package projects for school. So then I applied to College Photographer of the Year with the portfolio of work that I'd made in school in Ohio and during the internship in California. And I won College Photographer of the Year, which was exciting and Part of that means that you get an internship at National Geographic. So I was like making all these big life plans. Like I'm gonna go intern at National Geographic and then I'm gonna like go overseas and you know, like probably cover conflict or whatever. Cause I was still in that sort of mindset where I was thinking like that was the ultimate yeah. thing to yeah. do with photography. Um, so found out that I won college photographer of the year in November and then November 2006 and then January of 2007 found out that I was going to be a dad and that was when we were back in school I was in a another photo essay class with Bruce Strong one of my mentors and I was mm -hmm. back with the same families like in this kind of expanding radius where they, they would take me somewhere and introduce me to somebody else and I still wasn't really sure what I was doing it was like right around that time that a friend of mine said, hey, you know, there's this song you should listen to called Carry Me Ohio. And I was a big Sun Kill Moon, Mark Kozilek fan, mm -hmm. and I'd heard that song before, but I hadn't thought about that in the context of the work that I was making. And so that was kind of like the moment of awakening where I was like, oh, shit, like this is not just like these isolated stories, this is a connected look at this region and then these people and the things that they're going through and the way that they feel. Of course, I didn't get there until much later. Um, so I was also looking at lots of Eugene Richards work and when you're young and impressionable and photographing poverty, it's 
really easy to make the pictures all about the poverty and not about the people. But I had some wonderful professors that were like, yo, dude, you don't need to make it about poverty and neon lights. What about humanity and neon lights? And then like poverty is just part of the like in between the lines thing that you can read into it. It's like, oh, okay, well, that would change things. So started evolving the way that I was thinking about the work and the stuff that I was reading around the work in terms of sociological studies and things like that. Um, and what are these families doing to make a living? So a few of them, the seller's family, Jesse, the dad was kind of like in and out of work at the time, but he's a union welder. So he would go to these large construction jobs sometimes for months at a time. He's lived away for as long as a year since I started working with them, you know, Missouri, Arkansas, different places like that, wherever there's like a big construction site that he can get steady work at, he'll just go there and the family stays in Ohio. Um, so that was something he was doing. And then the Goins family, a couple of them were unemployed and then a couple of them worked in nursing homes. But the university is the biggest employer in the region, followed by Walmart. And we're in 2007 now, so it was like, right as things were about to explode with the recession. In 2008, that would have been, okay, so let's see. Um, all right, 2007, January, figured out that <laughs> we were going to be parents, and I was supposed yeah. to be gone that summer to do this internship at mm -hmm. National Geographic. Yeah. So I ended up calling them and being like, hey, guys, <laughs> this sounds great still, but I found out I'm going to be a dad, and I, I really want to be here for this. I don't want to be somewhere of course yeah where to, I can't be around for the did they offer you a chance to defer they did yeah. which was incredibly gracious of them that's and understanding so what ended up happening was um school wrapped up no actually <laughs> all right we found out in january we got married in june school wrapped up i think like a week after we got married we packed the car drove across the country. Actually, we drove from Ohio to here to Charlottesville, Virginia mm -hmm. for the first official public look three. So that was like our honeymoon. And then drove from Virginia to Portland, Oregon, where I did an internship at the uh, Oregonian. And so we lived there for a couple months while Melissa was pregnant and then moved back to Ohio shortly before the birth of our first daughter, Madeline. And we started classes up again. So it was my... Junior year? Yeah, my junior year. Melissa's sophomore year. So I was 20 and she was 19 at that point. Um, no, 21 and 20. Yeah. <laughs> and first daughter was born the beginning of October. And then we had this kind of alternating school schedule. So Melissa would be in class when I was out of class. Yeah, and yeah. we'd do the baby swap and... I really don't know how we managed to pull that off, but it worked. Um, and then we wrapped up that school year, 2008. I went and did the internship at National Geographic. Melissa moved back home with her parents, and I basically didn't see them for three months. I think sure. I saw them twice over the course yeah. of the summer, Yeah, which was one of the most miserable periods of my life. I can only imagine, yeah. So. I was in Peru, India, Rwanda, Botswana, South Africa, and the UK over the course of two and a half, three months, 
and were these places you'd been before or was it experience nope. and totally kind of experience. travel yeah, yeah like I'd, I'd been out of the country a couple times before that but i'd never been to that many places i'd never been to most of those places um each place was a new challenge i was like completely miserable <laughs> in all of these locations because i was just like missing my family and wanting to see yeah, what yeah, was happening yeah. in their in their lives and um and I also got the sensation that this whole idea, this like fantasy that I had of this, you know, like world traveling photographer was just that. It was a fantasy and it was kind of a fucked up fantasy to begin with where I was realizing like, I'm this white dude from America dropping into these places and pretending like I know what's going on, but I don't speak the language. I have no idea what's going on in these people's lives or in their minds. And I'm just projecting onto them like whatever's most convenient for us to believe as outsiders so it's it was parachute journalism it wasn't even journalism it was just like fulfilling assignments for the magazine to show them that i could you know yeah yeah um yeah so that was a kind of a wake-up call for me and after that i was like i think what i need to do is let go of this idea of being the globetrotting photographer i need to let go of the idea of being Nick Nichols or anybody like that, I need to first take care of my family and understand the country that I'm going to be raising my kids in. Because I didn't feel like I understood what was going on in America, and that was, again, like at the height of the recession, 2008. And I'd also helped form a cooperative of photographers in 2007. So we were kind of just getting off the ground. Everybody was freelance. Everybody was struggling. And we were all trying to figure out what the new reality in the industry was going to be because we knew that we weren't going to be newspaper photographers. We knew that there wasn't going to be any clear path or steady income. And I was wondering like what, what the fuck I was thinking, getting a degree in photojournalism, <laughs> like trying to think about how to raise a kid with, you know, like providing for a child with but a camera. Before, before the, the, uh, you had a family, did you have those sorts of reservations? about photography, about what you were doing and, and the validity of that at all? Mm-mm. No, I mean, I yeah. was just completely enamored with the medium and wasn't questioning right. any of that stuff. I need to question that stuff. And if I never had a family, then I probably would have ended up going and doing international work. I probably wouldn't have a permanent address right now. I would be mostly like couch surfing from one location sure. to the next. And I doubt I would have financial worries in the same way that I do. I also don't think I would have any money in the bank, which I don't now, but (laughs) I don't think that part would be different. Um, Yeah, my priorities would be way different for sure. Um, So after the Nat Geo internship, um, I guess you reunited back home or back in Ohio and then more mm -hmm. school to finish? Yeah, I had one more semester, basically, or a quarter there were still quarters then because um, I'd taken time off for my first internship. So I wrapped up in the fall of 2008 and Melissa wrapped up in the spring of 2009 and then we walked together uh, and then packed up and we moved to Norfolk, Virginia. And yeah, yeah. Well, what took you there? Well, the thought was I grew up around there. Uh, Melissa had applied to graduate schools around the country. She's a speech therapist, and she needed to get a grad degree before she could practice. Um, And she got accepted at Old Dominion and then in a few other places. And at that point in the recession, 
things were not looking good in Ohio. So like we could have pretty easily stayed in Ohio and her family would have been within a few hours drive, but not, like not right there. Mm-hmm. But what we wanted was to be in a place that was hopefully going to be a better economy where family is very close by and could help out when I get called away for assignment work. Because I was already doing freelance stuff. I'd started freelancing for the Virginian Pilot, my local newspaper, when I was 19, before yeah. Melissa and I met. Right. And then um, I guess the first magazine stuff I did was when I was in California for that first internship. I got called up by the Fader magazine, and mm-hmm. they started sending me on little music gigs here yeah, and there. Yeah. And that kept me pretty busy for a year or so. Uh, and then back in Ohio, you know, some New York Times and... You know, just like other little drips and drabs here and there. Were any of your classmates doing this kind of editorial stuff? I guess some. Some yeah. were beginning to dabble in it, especially like and I was in undergrad, but there were graduate students that had previous working experience yeah, yeah, yeah. and they were doing that as well. Uh, and there was certainly no lack of things to photograph around there at that point in time. Um, yeah, so I'd pretty much established that newspaper jobs were not going to be sustainable, but I still applied for an opening at the Virginian Pilot. When we moved there, it was like, oh, it's fate. You know, like maybe I'm supposed to come back and work for my hometown newspaper sure, and, sure. Yeah. and all of that. Um, but I didn't get hired. They hired two really, actually three really wonderful photographers, Preston Ganaway, Ross Taylor, and Amanda Lucier. And I'd known all of their work and like we all became very close friends. And Norfolk turned out to be this amazing hub for photographers for a period of years, mostly because of the pilot, but also just some strange fluke of geography. So there was a pretty glorious little creative community that sprouted up in Norfolk between like 2009 and 14 or so when people pretty much had bailed out of the pilot. Um, And there were still people there as late as this year, but pretty much everybody there that was like a big advocate for photography has left. Um, what were some of the first calls that you got once you relocated to Norfolk as far as jobs? That's a good question. <clears throat> I honestly don't even remember like the, the stuff I was doing in 2009 all that much assignment wise. Like I'd signed with an agency called Aurora Photos and so I was going to New York and doing meetings and it was lots of like Wall Street Journal, New York Times, day rates, you know, just real low editorial stuff. Um, there was some stuff for Time Magazine and some Newsweek stuff, you know, so some heavier hitting clients, I guess. But still, when you take 35% out of a $500 day to give to your agent, like I was really barely making any money. My wife was in grad school. Um, I guess she got hired, she finished grad school and got hired in 2011. Um, and that's when some of the pressure left my plate, but now it it feels like the roles have reversed a little bit. Like she's just stressed working all the time and I have periods of heavy work and then periods of quiet. So it's always trying to find that balance of we're like both pulling equal weight either in terms of family responsibilities or financial responsibilities. Um, But that's jumping forward a little bit. So 2009 in the fall, I was feeling pretty disillusioned and lost. Like I'd left Ohio. That was the only place that I'd ever really made serious work before. And I wasn't sure what 
to do next. But one of my college classmates called me up and was like, hey man, I'm in Louisiana now and I met this guy who knows these guys and they're pretty crazy, you should come hang out with them. Yeah. I was like, all right, well, I don't have anything to do. There's a little bit of money in the bank for one, so I'll check it out. I flew to Louisiana and happened to be when I was sick as a dog for some reason. Um, and my buddy dropped me off on the boat dock with these two alligator hunters named Rebel and Julius. And I hung out with them for a weekend. And then... What body of water? What, what part of Louisiana? Uh, it was near Homa. And so we were out hunting around an area called Shell Island, which was like an hour boat ride away from the dock in now, Homa. Is this sport or is this some this kind of commercial? commercial? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely like a money-making venture. And this was, again, in the recession, and the alligator hide industry had been decimated by this kind of like, you know, global market meltdown and like people weren't buying their products anymore because it used to be a large like European and Asian market for mm. American alligator skins. Yeah. Um, and so the price of these skins went way, way down. So these guys theoretically had to get more or bigger gators to make their bucks. Um, so I hung out with them for a couple of days, was super fascinated by what they did. So I decided to expand to photograph this like family run alligator farm that was kind of in that same area. So these guys are wild hunters. So they like go into the swamps and they hunt these guys, they set traps and it's kind of like fishing for something that can eat you. And is it regulated by the state and like the game department and all of that yeah, sort of thing? Yeah, totally regulated. Right, right. Like each plot of land only has so many tags. So they have to like have an agreement with the owner of the land to get like X number of tags. And every time something's shot, like they've got to tag it right away and put it in the bottom of the boat. And then, yeah, it's it was pretty well regulated, um, and then like I'm sure there's even more headaches when it comes to like running a commercial farming operation. But I was really fascinated by this family that had been doing this for a while, and it was like the whole family, kids to grandpa all the way up, and um, you know they'd go out and harvest eggs from the wild, and then they'd hatch them, and then they'd raise them until a certain size, and they're like, "Oh, you look like a watch band, so you're dead," and like, like you're gonna, you're going to be a boot, so you're gonna we're gonna wait a little longer for you, you know, like it, it was really um, fascinating. So part of the same industry, but uh, raising this the the animals rather than harvesting them from the wild. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I had. I think more like moral ethical concerns with the commercial farming than I did with the wild hunting. Um, which it was interesting cause I wasn't trying to make a judgment on the family or the people because I knew that it's hard work. Somebody has got to do it. So they may as well do it. Um, but yeah, it, it felt strange to think about a living creature being raised in total darkness. And the first time it sees light, it gets a knife through the back of the head, you know, like, it's just well, how issue. how is it? Uh, I'm curious about that. How is it that a, an alligator is raised in total darkness? So they have these kind of like imagine like a long chicken kind of coop, you know, like a like green a chicken house. hanger. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, a hanger. Okay, so there's a aisle down the middle, and then on both sides there's tubs. Yeah, and they'll have like dozens or hundreds of gators depending on the size mm -hmm. kind of all crammed in there yeah and they're fed through automatic machines like mm -hmm. there's no sunlight that gets into these things and so they're pretty much like i guess they 
probably see sunlight when they get moved to a larger container as they get bigger, but once they're of a certain size, somebody's gonna climb in there with these big boots on and with like a PVC pipe, pin them down, grab them in a way that they can't snap them, they take right. their, their mouths shut, toss them in a bucket, and then they go to the, the killing room and it, you know, like a blade or something like right through a certain part of their head Shoot and they're done and then they go down the skinning line, you know? And they don't waste anything either. Like there's meat, there's mm -hmm. feet, there's heads, you know, there's teeth, like all of that stuff gets used. So they're not, you know, just like killing for some little teeny part of it. But it was a fascinating and deeply disconcerting thing to watch. And so I started thinking a lot about how we as Americans in particular, but as humans, view our natural resources, which was something that I was dealing with in Ohio as well. But um, you know, that was more like coal, salt, clay, timber, the industry that supported that region for like a hundred years. So, which, which I hear is coming back. I hear it's all coming back. Yep, yep because we're 100%, making America great again. We are going yep. to. We're making coal great again. Fuck. Yes, yes. <laughs> Something to be so now, excited about. You, you are one of the few people I've met who's spent time in these red states and communities, which I would guess... And I can't say, again, I'm assuming, but uh, communities where I would imagine there's a lot of support for Trump. Um, mm -hmm. And I recently read the Financial Times article that you shot, um, The Boy Who Left Trump Country. Um, and I, can, can, these, can these places come back no. from what you've seen? No, like I, I think that's just a pipe dream, yeah. honestly. Like there's no way that this stage in the game that coal could be made clean or sustainable, right? It's just an illusion. And it's a sign of like how desperate people are that a fucking Yahoo like Trump could walk in, you know, like, and he's, he's not a like picked you, picked yourself up by the bootstraps kind of guy, you know, like, no, he, not he at all. you know, and that's kind of how he's viewed and that's how he sold himself, but like can swagger in and put on a hard hat and say that he's going to resurrect coal and that's like good enough for them, you know? I know there's more to it than that, but for sure. In talking to the kid that I photographed for that yeah. Financial Times right. weekend magazine thing, um, and his, and his family, they were like, yeah, that's really all it took for all of our neighbors to be like, yeah, Trump. So he just walked in and said, we're going to bring coal back, we're gonna put do on it. a hard hat. And that yeah. was, Let's get to that work. was a sales pitch. Yeah. Well, I, I, what do we we pray for that to not work out and for everybody to turn against him? <laughs> yeah, but at this point, um, I mean, wherever I've been, and this is something that, you know, like I'm making this work with like little bits of support in terms of publications or assignments or whatever, but by and large, self-generated work that's self-funded and not really sure why I was obsessing over these areas or these people yeah. and constantly finding myself in situations where I'm hearing things from people that are, like would singe my ear hairs, you know? And, sure, sure. And I still felt like I needed to, to hear that or to be there or just like put up with it for whatever reason, even though I'd like largely disagree with a lot of these folks. Um, and I didn't really know why, but for some reason, like waking up on Wednesday this week with the reality that Trump was president 
it all clicked in my head and I was like, well, that's why. And that's kind of what the work's been about. And I've had a hard time articulating it. When I started the work, he wasn't even a Republican, much less like in <laughs> our it. political discourse. You know what I mean? Right. So, but that's what's so, that's what's so, um, I mean, I just, I, I can't imagine the way that this is, this whole project has changed for you. And to see these important evolutions and changes happen through the course of something and then for it to sort of solidify and, and make a new kind of sense to you. Mm -hmm. I uh, mean, it's almost like I've been dabbling on a Frankenstein-type creature and then suddenly it's like, it's alive. <laughs> You're like, oh, fuck, I didn't really want it to come to life. What have I here done? Here it is, yeah. right. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been painfully aware of the disenfranchisement and the anger and all of these kind of underlying tensions and I've been trying to like visually articulate what it looks like or what it feels like or why it's important to pay attention to and for every time the work's been published it's been rejected five times on average you know for grants or magazines or whatever um so I got used to hearing I'm sorry you know like this work is really interesting or feels powerful, but it's just too depressing for our readership. And now I want to come back to those editors and be like... This is it. This like, is what has been happening. Right. Like, yeah. are, are you depressed now? Because they've been depressed for a long time. And like, and in many ways, we denied their reality. We denied that there was this deep-rooted problem that oh, was yeah. not being paid yeah. attention to. And now the roles have reversed, and they can deny our reality, which is that we want progress and equality and love and peace. And we believe that the world has issues that need to be dealt with, like global warming and on and on and on. And they can just be like, nah, nah, you know, <laughs> because that that's kind of the core of the democracy is that like the tables can turn at any point, but we should have seen it coming. We should have seen the writing on the wall long, long ago. Like, yeah, and we didn't. We didn't act on it or didn't organize or, or whatever. And it may be too late now. I hope not. I hope not, too. I've been reading <laughs> some pretty depressing articles the last few days. I haven't read, uh, I don't think, a, a hopeful article in in a week. But then you'll see something on the post where it's like, no, oh, they found a ship underwater. Isn't that just like sheer distraction? <laughs> I guess and I, don't, no, I can't bring myself to even read that. Yeah, I'm okay. surprised that you know our major news sites haven't just resorted to like cute cat playing piano videos on the front page yet, just, just to be like, it's gonna be okay. Uh, we guys. could get there. Here's a cute cat. We could get there. <laughs> <laughs> I have actually seen a few. It's interesting you should mention that, Matt, because I think on the Times and the Post to speak, I have seen links to adorable things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there yeah, was yeah. something on the New York Times. I can't remember what it was. Oh, oh. It, Part, there was one that was like chimp or like yeah no what monkeys with broken or severed vertebras can now walk again using yeah, this new technology tech, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the brain can talk to the spine cool cool <laughs> all right well the monkeys are fucked too so oh jeez man so uh we were talking about louisiana and mm -hmm. time you spent there and yeah. um how those pictures or those those people and the desperation of their situation related back to Ohio. It did, um, in, in ways that I hadn't expected. It was, I started seeing these parallel lives or parallel, like, 
themes in the work, same kinds of people, just different places, maybe dressed a little differently, maybe they had a different accent, but same situation, right? And so that was 2009. I basically did this alligator story as something to distract me from my feeling displaced and like longing for Ohio now that I was back home and kind of hating it. Um, and then in early 2010, uh, I was sent on an assignment to Mississippi. And so when I went to Louisiana, I think the first time I'd been there was like 2008 with a couple friends. And I was really enamored with the deep South and just the mystery and the beauty of it. So I'd never been to Mississippi, but early 2010, uh, an editor from AARP sent me to Mississippi to do this little piece on rural health care. And I completely fell in love with this town that I went to, and that kind of became the next obsession. And that consumed me for four or five years. And I'm still not done with the work, but I've had to put it aside for a little while. You can only do so many things at once, I guess. It's very true. Yeah. So life in Norfolk is traveling out to work on your own pictures, taking some editorial jobs. And um, how was it that you left Norfolk and came out to Charlottesville? And uh, my apologies if I skipped uh, a chapter in your life, but did you, was that the jump? Norfolk out to here? Um, Yeah, at a certain point. So let's see, we were in Norfolk for six years. We moved there in 2009 and... Our second daughter was born in 2012, and it was around then that my wife was out of work for a while, and it was just my sporadic freelance living that was kind of supporting us. So that was a bit of a a nasty wake-up call for me, realizing, like, this isn't fair to my family. This is not fair to children to, A, like, never know when Dad's going to be home or gone, to never be able to save any money. Like, there's no way we're going to put them through college doing this. Um, So I figured that if I really was going to continue making work and still have some sort of steady job, that teaching might be a kind of valid reaction to the circumstances (laughs) surrounding us. So I decided to pursue an MFA. Uh, And I looked into that for a little while. I applied to some schools. This is all while, you know, juggling freelance projects. And uh, I left the Cooperative Luceo in 2012, kind of like in the midst of the Baptist town work. I left right before our second daughter was born because it was just too much to try and help run a cooperative and do the projects and do the family thing and do the assignment work. Um, So early 2014... I found out that I'd gotten into grad school, and that was at Hartford Art School's yeah, International Limited Residency Program. You mentioned a few other, that you had applied to a few other places. Uh, where else were you looking? What it was, was Hartford and Yale. Yeah. And I was yeah. interested in I applied Yale. to Yale, too. Cool. Yeah. I was interested in Yale because I'd read Core Curriculum by Todd Papa George, and that book was an awakening. 14. So he was me. gone, though, wasn't he? He was on his way out. Yeah. So I was yeah. thinking that, like, maybe I'd be fortunate enough to, like, catch him for a couple classes. But I wanted right. to study, like, in that kind of legacy of yep. traditional so did I. straight photography. So did right? I. And I, I interviewed in 13, spring of 13. Okay. And Papa George was still director, but that was the last semester he was director. Hmm. 
Um, and then I guess when you applied, Crutzen had already taken that he was the helm, but Papa George was still there. Yeah, but, kind of like in the shadows a little bit. Yeah, I I knew about Yale, and David Laspina suggested I apply, so I did. I, I okay, sure. So I sent my stuff in and interviewed, but um, they decided I wasn't ready. But I think that if I had gotten in, it would have been for something I. It wasn't what I had signed up for. You know, I would have been there for a transition year. And Papa George had been there for 30 years. Right. And I can only imagine that no matter how good the person who takes over is, that it's a rough transition mm-hmm. between the two of them. And Benson left too. Yeah. Like Benson might be the most important person to my understanding of photography. Um, and I badly wanted to work with him too. Yeah. So that was the, that was the place. Um, yeah, definitely was but the Hartford, place. Hartford, man, um, there's some cool cats up there. And they come from that Yale lineage yeah. in a lot of ways. And I was I was just putting all the pieces together at the time. So I'd applied to Yale, and that's where I really wanted to go. But I didn't want to move my family to Connecticut. We loved Virginia. We had deep roots there. Yeah. But I also knew that that would be a great place to prepare myself to teach, right? So I applied, and then one of my references just did not send her letter, like completely flaked what out. What the fuck? So I never even got an interview at Holy Yale. Holy shit. Just because you didn't have like three recommendation letters? Yeah. What the f- <laughs> <laughs> And it was like a, a curator that had just given me a big solo show, and yeah. she was like a big supporter yeah. of my work, and she just forgot, you know, like total normal oh, human thing. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it was definitely a, a WTF moment. Um, How did you find out? Did Yale tell you? Yeah, I think it was just that, you know, I got a, like, thanks, no thanks, like, you didn't have a complete application, like, we can't consider your work, Holy that kind cow. of thing. Um, and right around then, I was contacted by Hartford, and they were like, hey, we want you to be part of the program. And I was like, cool, thanks, guys, no thanks, you know, I'm pretty busy, and, like, really wanted to go to this other thing you know and just found out i couldn't go there anyhow right, so right. like uh. and they're like no 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 this is for you right well and then they were like so well how about some scholarship money and then i was like no no guys thanks no thanks and they're like well here's here's a little more and then so it ended up being like a really like hard to turn down kind of thing at hartford for that first year so i was like oh well maybe it's meant to be so i signed up and said yep sure i'll do that means that i don't have to move the family which is great yeah yeah and then I got there and completely fell in love with my classmates. They were all amazing, all from different you know backgrounds and bringing kind of different ideas and thought processes to the work. Uh, and the faculty's intense, but they're really, really good. And two of the three core fac- faculty in the Hartford program studied under Papa George and Yale, so they still bring that same sort of tenacity to the critiques. Um, <laughs> Which certainly, like, it's it's what you want when you're going to sign up for yeah, grad school. Right, but then right. when you're in there, yeah, like, under the microscope, it's really, really painful. Do they put you in a chair in front of everybody? Are you, you in the circle? You're standing at the beginning of it yeah. and then, like, curled up rocking, um, you know, in the corner oh. by the time you're done. <laughs> well, which two are Yaley's up at Hartford? Uh, Robert Lyons, yeah. who was actually, I believe he was Papa George's first class in 1970, whatever, yeah. yeah. And then, or um, eight or something. Yeah, and then <clears throat> Michael Varenwald, who is, I think, circa 2001 or something like that. So the way Hartford works, from what I understand, is that you guys meet up a few times a year, and you're able to be in the places where you live and, and make your work, mm-hmm. and then uh, reconvene to analyze the work and, uh, I guess, get feedback and, and critique? 
Yeah, that's a simplification uh, that, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people have the idea that it's not a full-time program, but it, it is very much a full-time program. So we do meet three times a year. So it's it started for us in July of 2014, and we met in Hartford, Connecticut, and then um, met again like in December between Hartford and New York, and then Berlin in the spring, and then back in Hartford, and then Portland, Oregon in the fall, and then Berlin again in the spring, and then the final summer graduation in Hartford. So bounce around a bit. Um, but in between those sessions, we got regular Skype meetings. Some of them are individual critiques with our advisor, and mm-hmm. some of them are group critiques where we have to present the work to a group, you know, in PDF form over Skype, and you just get kind of like whittled down, <laughs> like on a lot of levels. Um, and there's papers due, and you know, all kinds of other things. Some some theoretical classes and history of photography at all. A little bit, yeah. but it's all so compressed because we're not there full time mm-hmm. that things tend to be a little bit like. <clears throat> like the fire hose approach to education where mm-hmm. like we had Steve Smith, uh, who's a RISD professor come yeah, down yeah. and give a digital class and hot damn, that guy is so smart and knows everything you would possibly want to know. But it's kind of like, I think it was three to five hours a day. I can't remember how much lab time we had, but it was just like your eyes are kind of always on screen mode, you know, and just like they give up on you after a certain point and you're like trying to take in information and stare at a screen and adjust a file and yeah, learn yeah. and retain. And mm-hmm. it's very, very difficult because yeah. you don't have the, like it's stuff that he would have taken an entire semester sure, to drill sure. down on. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. we had like a week. So it feels like a lot, but you get what you need and the rest of it falls away yeah. in a lot of ways. <laughs> So what are you shooting through grad school? What's uh, What's been your thread through all of that? Well, I entered grad school thinking this is a great kind of incubator for this project that I'm working on about the American condition, the mm-hmm. invisible yoke, which yeah. doesn't fit in photojournalism, documentary fields. And, you know, I take it to magazines and they say, oh, this looks like it might be something that belongs on a wall. And then I take it to a gallery and they're like, oh, this looks like something that might be good in a magazine. And you're kind of like, <laughs> okay, fuck all of these people. And... The fact that my work is like an orphan creation, like it doesn't have a home, maybe in grad school I'll be able to figure out some of these things or at least how to better articulate what I'm doing with the work, right? Right on. So that was my thought. And I came in and showed The Invisible Yoke in the first critique, and it went pretty well. Like I didn't get completely annihilated, but Mm -hmm. I was, you know, like people were dancing around trying to figure out what I was doing a little bit. Um, and then my advisor was like, you should really lean into this family work a little bit. Um, you know, you take a step away from you're looking at America, like let's go a little more personal, lean in on the family stuff. So for a while I focused on photographing my family, which I was already doing and continuing the America stuff. And what I really wanted to do is to like bring it all together without these boundaries of geography and content or whatever. Like I wanted a picture of my daughter next to a picture, like of a little girl in Ferguson, Missouri at the protests, you know, like I wanted to be able to blend all of these different facets of my life that I was, I felt like, you know, this kind of stream of consciousness experience moving from one place to the next. And I wanted to somehow be able to 
take people through that experience with me or make it feel a little more like and that. Re- reflect a little of your understanding of America with the uh, your immediate understanding of your own family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of the idea, and it really didn't go well. Um, and the critiques over Skype were really difficult. And then I brought like all family work. I put probably like 60, 80 pictures on the wall or mm-hmm. something like that for the fall critique and just got annihilated. Like the work was criticized. I was criticized as a human being, you know, as a father, as a husband, like all of it, like every uh, little wait, facet how did, of how did got, it become, got taken apart. How did it become so personal outside of the pictures? I have no idea, but sometimes but it, did. It, it, yeah. like, w- it took me a while to understand that there's definitely head games that go on in grad school, mm-hmm. and some of it is them trying to figure out which buttons to push, and like I had a lot of you know people talk to me over the years about technical aspects of my work that were successful or unsuccessful, and I, I couldn't... Be flustered talking about that kind of stuff so easily, you know. Mm-hmm. But if they like, they figured out if they attacked me as a person, that that got under my skin a little bit quicker. Obviously, um, yeah. So, and after a while, I would usually just kind of shut down and let the things wash over me that people were saying until I couldn't retain it anymore, you know. Hmm. But thankfully, people are taking like classmates are taking notes. Yeah. During your critiques. Yeah. Uh, well, out of out of all this uh, annihilation, as you called it, what what was helpful? I mean, it just seems. <laughs> it uh, seemed... Well, I think the thing that I took away was. One of the faculty members said, "We don't give a fuck about your family photo album," which is. Totally valid. Stings. But then, like, if you let that rattle around in your brain a little bit, you're like, okay, so I'm making pictures of my family. It's a family album. But if it's just me as a dad, you know, being like, oh, look, my, my kids are cute, or, like, what's the point? You know, like, where does it transcend? How is it universal? And I, I'm always kind of drawn to the idea of universality through specificity. So, like, you're very specifically focused on one thing that speaks to this universal theme, right, that yeah, everybody yeah. can kind of find themselves in. So that's what I wanted to do with the work, but it wasn't going there. So at the end of that session, and, and just to give some context, my undergrad education in photojournalism, they teach you how to make images again, like a machine, but not how to think about it. So we're, I was this kind of like robotic image producing creature and nobody in the grad school setting knew what to do with that or with me. It was like, I was the only one that had a camera with me every damn day. I would photograph like walking to classes and like photograph my class. Like I was always on, always shooting and they saw that as a problem. So they're like, we're going to break that. <laughs> like that's, that's a habit that we need to break. Mm. So my instructions moving forward were to make one photograph per day, only using the Mia 7 and only of my wife. And as is often the case, when we're presented with a lot of information, we hear what we want to hear. So I heard one frame a day, Mamiya 7 of my family. Mm. So I did not focus specifically on Melissa. Mm-hmm. And if I'd heard that piece of advice yeah. and followed it to the letter, I would have gotten a lot further, a lot quicker. Um, so at that point, I kind of put the digital camera aside and I started this ritual of making one photograph a day, color film, Mamiya 7. I didn't have a flash on it. 
Most of it was after dark, like when Melissa got home from work. It was just a shit show. It was, you know, like the winter months. I wasn't feeling really inspired anyhow. And yeah, it was just, it was not a good creative time. But then when I got the film back in early January, I was like, oh, I don't know what it was, but something had changed. Like something broke in me <laughs> like through this process. And then it continued to evolve. So I shot a lot of just random stuff with Mumia 7 color. I kind of started incorporating that into my practice as I wandered America, continued kind of like fruitlessly trying to blend, you know, my interior and exterior worlds together. And that just wasn't jiving still. Um, got back to the summer session. So this is like going into my second year. And I think I'd kind of honed in on the family work at that point. So that's what I was presenting was like all color, medium format family work. And Alex Soth said, you know, I'm kind of disappointed that this isn't a bigger departure for you. It feels like it's still in that editorial way of working. And I wanted to say, like, I, I don't understand what you mean, man. Like, it all feels editorial to me. Like, I don't get the distinction. It seems kind of arbitrary. Um, but what he meant was that, like, I was still thinking and making work kind of in the same way. I felt like I'd had some radical shifts, but they weren't manifesting themselves in the work yet. Mm -hmm. So then the second year, I switched advisors from Robert Lyons the first year to Jurg Kohlberg the second year. And Jurg is a very hard person to read. Totally brilliant guy. Um, and that was right around the time that we moved to Charlottesville, actually. So we left Norfolk the summer of 2015, mm -hmm. I think two weeks before the summer session. So I basically moved the family to this new town, dropped them in an unfamiliar place, and I left. And then while I was gone, Melissa started her new job and like had to settle into this new community by herself. And so she's struggling here and I'm completely miserable there, again, being like beat down and demoralized. Yeah, yeah. What I thought was progress, but wasn't enough progress, right? Mm -hmm. So leave the session with Jurg as my advisor and he encouraged me to make a project about Charlottesville, which I thought, okay, cool, you know, like I can just let go of this family stuff and focus on something else. And I really tried for a while and brought that work to the fall session in Portland and I just couldn't talk about it because I didn't have any emotional investment in it. It was more like an assignment that I didn't really care about than anything else. And so that was kind of an awakening point for me too. And I realized the reason that I went to grad school was for my family. Yeah. I need to make work about my family. And Jurg was directly opposed to that. He's, this is a quote where he said, your family work is moving at a glacial pace. I think you should abandon it. And I had to decide to ignore that advice. Um, but I still wasn't hitting the stride with that work. So another one of the faculty members gave a piece of advice, which was if you're struggling to reinvent yourself or to find a new language with your medium, take everything that's working in your work and strip it away and then see what you're left with. So I thought I use color pretty well. I haven't shot in black and white in a long time. We'll see what that would be like. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm used to being mobile and pretty fluid in the way that I move and shoot and see. 
So what if I lock that down on a tripod? So that started as an experiment when I went back to photograph the Sellers family in Ohio in late 2015. And I had a friend with me who was a writer, and she contributed one of the texts for the Ohio book. So it was like coming full circle, went back to the first people that had ever allowed me to photograph them, really. And I was like, hey, guys, I want to try something new with you. I've got this camera on a tripod with black and white film, and I think I want to be in the pictures with you guys. So Jesse, the father of the Deaf Twins, and I, like, just made some really dumb pictures together, like smoking cigarettes and arm wrestling and holding guns. And <laughs> just yeah, like, yeah. we were just having fun, kind of fucking off and mm -hmm. like, and wrestling in the backyard and stuff. And my friend Kate's not a photographer, but I would just like set it up, set the exposure, set the focus, sure. and she would choose the moment, yeah. push the button. Yeah. And there was something in those pictures that I couldn't quite figure out, but I was like, okay, all right. So I like I stripped away all of the stuff and I'm left with something new, now what? And I just hammered on that for as long as I could, focusing more and more on the family um, and made kind of a new body of work. There's some pieces from before that began to find their way back into it, but pretty much everything for the thesis was made from like January until June or so, or May, I guess was when we had to have everything in for book production this year yeah of 2016 yeah. Yeah. yeah so what kind of film is that all uh ilford hp5 right on yeah. yeah so that's been well it looks like these pictures work to me yeah <laughs> i guess you've, you've got it going on i uh if it doesn't seem like the uh the earlier versions maybe made it in there but who knows i mean there's some be these are beautiful some, pictures thanks man yeah. there's some earlier pictures that made it in there and then as soon as i was done putting that maquette together that's when i actually hit like another expansive kind of like spurt of work where i was like oh you know like now that i'm done with this thing and done producing for this assignment for school i felt free and i was able to really get out and have fun. And I added strobe to the work like at the very last minute, which would have saved me so much headache if I had done that a year before. I just didn't think about it. You know, I was still torn between film and digital and wrestling with technical issues, but the flash completely opened up new possibilities for the work, especially thinking about how much of its interior life, you know, inside the home, shooting with a Mamiya 7, rating it ISO 250 and like I mean I was trying to handhold so many pictures at like an eighth of a second at f4 <laughs> it's just a mess um yeah so I feel like I'm finally in a better place with that work I know what I'm doing with it basically but I'm still trying to begin hammering out the details so I was just making work prints because the next phase is shifting them around and seeing what's going to stick and what's going to go yeah, yeah. And that's something completely separate from the Invisible Yoke, which is going to be that box set that Carry Me Ohio is kind of setting the stage for. Yeah, right on. So how is it that you... It sounds like you've got multiple things going on all at once. You've got your family, family work, grad school, uh, taking assignments, and then still doing these sort of uh, personal projects that are far from home. So how is it that you sort of 
put the finishing chapter on on this this first piece of Invisible Yoke? Uh, well, I'd been coming and going from Ohio since we moved, just trying to stay in touch with people there. And Melissa's family still lives up by Cleveland, so we'd have you know a good reason to pass through maybe once a year or something like that. Um, but when I started figuring out details for the book, I was able to find some grant funding and then use that to spend some time. And I got like a smaller grant that helped me get a bigger grant. Yeah. And the bigger grant helped diffuse the cost of making some of the final images as well as the publication costs. Of right the work. on. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of the way that I've been pulling this off bit by piece, you know, piece by piece. Um, and that actually goes back to something that. One of my undergrad professors, Terry Eiler, told me because I would come into this office and just like lay out these big ideas, and he's like, "Sounds like a little more than you want to try and chew on. Like, why don't you break it into pieces and like get funding for this piece and then get funding for that piece? You know, instead of just like looking at it as one expansive thing." So that advice has made it possible to do something like this piece by piece, and hopefully, I'll be able to continue doing that because. There's still more work to be made in Mississippi and Virginia, and then for the final America chapter as well. Just going to require more funding, but now that the momentum's going, it's going to hopefully or theoretically be easier to solicit the funding from people by sure. saying, like, I've made this work, it's yeah. been exhibited in these places and yeah. published here, and there's a guy who's going to publish these next chapters, so please help out and make it possible. Um, because otherwise, yeah, it's just going to stall out because I don't have the money. For sure. Um, and now the the new development post grad school is just going to be trying to find a teaching job and then balancing all of this creative practice stuff yeah, with yeah. the academic practice. Whatever that ends up, whatever shape that ends up taking, I guess. Totally. Yeah. Is there any particular part of the country that you want to be in? We love it here, but yeah. I'm totally open minded, man. Like anywhere that would be a good place to raise the family would be fine with me. Um, but I've got a feeling we won't be able to be very picky, at least. Work is where work is, I guess, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whether you're teaching or making pictures for somebody that's asked you to. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, Matt, thanks a lot for having me over. Thanks for breakfast and uh, great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for making the drive down. Yeah. Happy to. This episode was recorded November 12th, 2016 in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our theme music is by Daniel Bachman. I'm on Instagram at Eric Martin. And for more information on the show or to listen to older episodes, log on to www.thehalftone.org.